Let's look at uh, the fifth chapter of Romans. How many have the first four chapters memorized? I'm the only one? No? I thought you guys were keeping up with me. More fun this way, huh? Let me see if I can recite the fourth chapter for you. What then shall we say that our forefather Abraham discovered in this matter? If in fact he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. What's that next now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Therefore, or however, to the man who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the wicked, or trusts in God who justifies the wicked, his faith will be credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now David quotes from Psalm 32. He said, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what conditions, then, was it credited? Was it credited while he was, or be, uh, after he was circumcised or before? Not after, but before. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so, Abraham is the father of all who believe, but who are not circumcised, in order that they have, might have righteousness credited to them. And he is also the father of the Circumcised, who although they are circumcised, they walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. The faith that he had before he was circumcised. It was not, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law, if it is those who live by law, are the heirs, then faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. 
so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, to those who are of the law and to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Oh, I missed a verse, didn't I? Oh, I missed the most important verse, didn't I? Verse 17. Where did I leave off? He's the father of us all. Okay. What's the next word? He is our father. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. How could I miss that? He is our Father in the sight of God whom he believed, the God who what? Give life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. Amen. Oh, that's powerful. How could I forget? That's one of my favorite verses. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea <laughs> Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been promised him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. Gave glory to God, being fully assured that God had the power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him are not for Abraham alone, but for us also. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sin and raised to life for our justification. Amen. All right. Well, now there's still time for you guys to catch me. It's only four chapters. There's still time, okay? All right. Now, chapter 5, we're going to look at the first verse and a half of this passage. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, what? By faith or through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. This whole passage, well, let me just say this. From chapters, chapters 3 and 4, Paul has been detailing to us the great truth of salvation by faith. Salvation by grace through faith, right? We've been talking about that. And we're all well grounded in that great truth. Now he goes on in chapter 5, and actually from chapter 5 through chapter 8, to give us assurance of this doctrine. He spends the next four chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, to solidify and to give us assurance 
of this doctrine of justification by faith. Now, why, would is, he, why is he going to do this? The question will always come up. The question will always arise. Well, okay, if Paul, what you're saying is true. Now, remember, he's talking to, to people who salvation by faith was a revolutionary doctrine. Even for the Jews, they lived under a what? A works loss kind of system, didn't they? They attained righteousness by keeping the law, by obeying the commandments, and by doing good works. And really, that's the basis for all the other religions in the world, isn't it? Human effort. That men are saved because they're good enough. Men are are saved because they have enough good works to their credit that outweigh their bad works. Human effort. So you can see that Paul has been teaching this doctrine that if you believe what God says, if you put your faith in him, that will make you righteous. That's revolutionary. Nobody's ever heard that before. Now, the question is going to come up. Well, Paul, if this is true, if what you're saying is right, then if we're saved by faith, if we get in by believing, what keeps us in? How do we stay in? Can we lose it? Can you see how that question will come up? Now, that's an issue. That's a question that has dogged the church for centuries. Can you lose your salvation? The issue of eternal security. That's a weighty question. And every time people ask me the questions and talk about it with me, I, don't, I try not to focus on that issue. But we're going to focus on it tonight because this is what the passage teaches. So we're forced to. When people ask me about that, generally I say, well, that, what's really the issue? The real issue is, are you persevering in the faith? Are you living for Jesus? Are you serving him? That's the real bottom line issue, isn't it? I think when you get caught up in the argument of can you or can't you, that's when you really have some problems. But we're going to deal with that issue tonight. We're going to look at the scriptures. We've got quite a few scriptures, by the way. And... Um, see just exactly what the Holy Spirit through Paul has to say about this issue of justification by faith. Astounding things. And you'll, you'll discover, now if you've ever been embroiled in a discussion, a theological debate over this issue, you will discover that hardly ever is the fifth chapter of Romans ever raised to support eternal security. If you've ever been embroiled in one of those conversations... But I hope to show you tonight how you can use this chapter to support that particular stance. Now, is salvation by grace through faith permanent? Does it last? Can I maintain it, or is it maintained, or how is it maintained? Is my salvation good only as long as I maintain it by keeping some kind of standard? Now see, sadly, there's lots and lots of people who believe that that's what you have to do. You have to maintain some kind of works standard. 
You have to meet some kind of standard in order to maintain your salvation. Because if you don't maintain it, you lose it. What if I sin? Does that lose it for me? Does that blow me out of the water? Does that send me out of God's grace? Well, we'll hope to answer that. Now, the inevitable question that comes up. People will ask, they'll say, do you mean, do you mean that I can become a Christian and do anything I want? <laughs> well, we'll answer that question when we get to the sixth chapter of Romans. Now, you can read ahead if you want, and you'll see that Paul answers that quite conclusively. But we're going to talk about this. Now, Satan likes, it's his great delight to make us doubt our salvation. He loves to make people doubt it. He constantly attacks you where? In the thought life. And his greatest delight is to get a saint disabled thinking they are not saved. Have you ever had that? Have you ever wrestled with that? Now, remember a few weeks ago we talked about doubt? Don't confuse doubt with unbelief. That doubt can be a very good thing because doubt forces you to rethink these doctrines. Doubt forces you to reevaluate. Doubt forces you to go back to the scriptures and to search them out. To come back up and say, Aha, I knew I was right. Okay? But sometimes people confuse doubt with unbelief, and their unbelief is the thing that really has blown them away. So don't do that. But Satan loves to do that. That's why Paul writes in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Doesn't he? And he says, take the, the helmet of what? The helmet of salvation. You put the helmet of salvation on. You think salvation. You see, Satan wants to blast out your thinking. That's why he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Put on that helmet so that your thinking is protected, so that you know there's no doubt. Am I saved? Oh, gosh. Put on the helmet of salvation to guard your head, to guard your thinking, to guard your mind. Though he attacks, he will not defeat you. So Paul writes there to put on the thinking, put on the helmet of salvation. Now in verse 1 of this fifth chapter, we have the word therefore. It's a very appropriate chapter division here. Sometimes when, when the people who translated the Bibles originally divided the chapters up, some of the chapter divisions are rather unfortunate and they're in inappropriate places. This one's in a very appropriate place. The word therefore. Paul is setting the stage. Therefore means based on everything I've been telling you now. Therefore. Therefore. Now he's getting ready to launch out. It's like he, it's like he opens this door and he's leaving one subject, the doctrine of salvation by faith. 
and he's walking into this new room, and this new room is full of assurances, full of evidences that when you get in by faith, you stay by faith. That you're God's forever. And he's going to take four chapters to show us, to urge us. Paul is going to help us put on the helmet of salvation so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're his forever. Is that exciting? Isn't that nice to know? Don't get too excited now. Oh, powerful stuff. Therefore, he says, since we have been justified, now that's in the aorist tense in the Greek, have been justified. It's an aorist participle. All that means is this, is that it happened. It's a fact, it's established. We have been justified. It's a fact. It's right there. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, now I want you to see something here. The very first great benefit of being justified by faith is this. We have peace with God. Now, if you've not been justified, guess what? You don't have peace with God. Now, we've been talking about being justified. For those of you who haven't been with us, maybe who haven't been in a church in a while, simply justified means that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as God's solution to your dilemma. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are justified. God declares you not guilty. And on that basis, the very first great benefit that comes to you is that you have peace with God. God is no longer your enemy, and you're no longer his enemy. Isn't that exciting? Absolutely thrilling. What is the most sought-after thing in this entire world? Think with me. Money? People are seeking after money like crazy. How many of you seek after money? Be honest. Everybody raise your hand. Everybody's seeking after it, right? Doesn't money mean security? Sure it does. Sure, you, if you don't want it, mean it's, if you don't want it, give it to me. <laughs> people are out there scratching for it, fighting for it, running over people for it, killing for it. Why? Because it means security. You know what another word for security is? Peace. Peace. If it's not money, it's what? Power. Power. If it's not power, it's what? Success. If it's not success, it's what? Fame. All of these kinds of things the world is seeking after, but in fact, what the world is really seeking after is nothing more than peace. Than peace. I want to be at peace. I want to be secure. I don't want to be threatened. I want things to be okay. I don't want to be afraid for the future. Oh, I want peace and I'll do anything to get it. Well, almost. Except Jesus. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the world says? 
Don't talk to me about Jesus. I'm busy getting my own peace. <laughs> but Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. Now Paul says it right here. He says, having been justified, we have peace with God. Now the peace that I'm talking about, the peace we're going to describe, is not just some kind of emotional tranquility. This is real, objective peace. Real, objective peace. It's not just some kind of subjective feeling. And when you have peace with God, then, and only then, can you begin to experience what? The peace of God. You want God to come into your life? You want to make things right? You want to experience his peace? You want the turmoil and the fears and the anxieties relieved? That's only going to happen first if you have peace with him. If you don't have peace with him, you're not going to have any peace in your life at all. And every single man, every single woman, every single person has to come to terms with this whole issue. Having been justified, we have peace with God. Now look at this. I want to show you something. In the Greek text, the idea of having peace, have peace, the word have, that is in the perfect tense. We have perfectly peace with God. We have fully peace with God. It is a settled issue. It's in the perfect tense. It's already done. It's done as much as it could ever be done. It's perfect. Isn't that exciting? Perfect peace. Not imperfect peace. Perfect peace. Perfect peace lasts and there's nothing that can disturb it. Nothing can disturb this peace. It's perfect. Nothing. God was our enemy. And we were his enemy, the Bible tells us. But we have peace with him now. What's the opposite of peace? Huh? What is it? War. War. When a person doesn't have peace with God, they are at war with God. And guess what? God's at war with them. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? Isn't that a wonderful thought to think that God's at war with you? He is. He's at war. God is furious with men. He's furious. I had this friend at the health club. That <laughs> I haven't done this yet, but I had a vision of it the other night. You know, was, my mind was filled with all this stuff that I was just studying, and, and I was going to go to the health club this morning, but I didn't. I just slept in. I was too tired for my vacation. <laughs> you know how that goes. But I had this vision, you know, in the health club, you walk up these stairs, and there's a weight room upstairs, 
And so I was going to walk up the stairs and get to really to the top of the stairs, getting ready to go into the weight room, and I was going to say, Tom! God is furious with you! Oh, I can hardly wait. We see, God's at war with men. God's at war with me. So wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean God's at war with me? I like God. God's okay. I'm not, I'm not fighting against him. I'm not attacking his kingdom. I mean, I let, I let my employees have a Bible study at lunchtime. You know, it's, it's cool. I'm interested in what God thinks. I, I'm not fighting against him. Well, that's nice. You may not consciously think you're at war with, with him, but that's really not the issue, is it? The issue is, he's at war with you, whether you like it or not. People don't see this. They don't think it. They don't understand it. God's at war against sin, isn't he? God's sole purpose and sworn purpose is to wipe out sin. Totally destroy it. Destroy Satan. Destroy the whole domain of darkness and evil. He is at war against it. And when a person has not been justified, when a person has not put their faith in Christ, they are not his children. They are not sons of God. They are sons of who? Satan, the Bible tells us. And as sons of Satan, part of his domain, ruled by sin, intimately acquainted with sin, they are the object of God's wrath. We saw this when we first started Romans over a year ago. <laughs> if you can remember back that far. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see? God's at war with the sinner. And you may not be consciously aware that he's at war with you if you've not confided in Christ, if you've not trusted Christ. He's at war with you. Let me share some verses with you. In Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, don't turn it. Let me just read it to you. You can hear God's anger. 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 21. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. Is God angry? Yeah. Look at Joshua, the 23rd chapter, verses 15 and 16. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. 
if you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, God's, that God's talking to Israel there. God's word and the principles for people who don't put their faith in him and trust him, like he says, Old Testament and New Testament are still the same. They're still the same. In 2 Kings, the 22nd chapter, verse 13, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Isaiah, the 13th chapter. Listen to this. Verse 9 through 13. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place and the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Is God at war? Yes, he is. Over in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, let me read you this. Lest you not think this is in the New Testament. Chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't listen to the philosophies of this world. Don't let people flatter you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now I want you to listen to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, ridden on white horse, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you see, beloved, can you see how God is furious with sinners? Can you see how he is at war 
And he is going to take the sinner who doesn't repent, who doesn't put their trust and their faith in his source, in his provision, Jesus Christ, and he's going to take that sinner and he's going to put him in hell where he's going to burn forever. God's wrath. He is at war. Exciting, huh? Doesn't I bless you? But you know what? Aren't you glad that we've been justified? Aren't you glad for Jesus? Because all of these things, this anger and this fury and this wrath is not going to be poured out on you and I. Because it was already poured out on Jesus in my place and in your place. He took God's wrath and fury for us that we might no longer be at war with God, but that we might, what? Have peace with God. We're at peace. We're at peace. No more war. No more threat of war. Nothing can plunge us back into that war. It is now a perfect peace. No threat of his wrath and his anger and his fury now directed towards me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise his name. I have peace with God. And now that I have peace with God, I can enter into a relationship in which I can begin to experience the peace of God in my life. As I live out my days on this world, as I encounter the various trials and the tribulations and the sufferings that are certainly going to come my way, God promises me his peace. His peace will sustain me and carry me through those times. I could never have his peace unless I were first at peace with him. Have you ever heard people say, well, I'm going to make my peace with God? Generally, it's on their deathbed, isn't it? You come in, you visit them in the hospital, they say, well, have you made your peace? Well, yeah. No man can make peace with God. No man can make his own peace with God. Do you know that? Each and every human being has to come to God humbly and repent and say, God, forgive me and be ushered into peace with God. And people very casually say, oh, I've made my peace. It's your peace. You can't make your peace. You can't do it. We have some vague picture of God that, well, you know, after all, it's no big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal. Sin is an incredibly big deal to God. So much so that it requires death, requires shedding of the blood of the Son of God. That's how big a deal it is. You can't make peace with God. You come to God on his terms, not on your terms. Well, God, okay. Everything's cool. I know you're up there. I like you. I know you did some bad things, but, you know, I know you're a cool God and you have a sense of humor. And after all, you know, I wasn't really that bad. That's what people do. That's what people do. 
mean, they're on the verge, they're on the brink of eternity in hell, burning forever. Oh, I'm at peace with God, are you? Are you? Are you at peace with God? On what basis? You can only claim to be at peace with God because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just, remember, this faith is not just an intellectual assenting to a fact that Jesus lived and died and you believe in him. This faith takes root down deep inside of you and it's of such quality that your life is transformed. I'm a different person. Jesus has changed me. That's the kind of faith we're talking about, isn't it? Not just, oh, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus, sure. Well, he forgives me, I can do anything I want. No. No, there has to be evidence of a transformed life. Is that person who's transformed is the person who's justified. Jesus said you'll know them by their what? By the fruit. You can recognize a transformed person, huh? By a changed life. They're different. This is not just some kind of benign tolerance or just because a person doesn't persecute the church. Just because they're kind of quiet, and that's not faith. That's not being on God's side. Being on God's side, having peace with him, is believing in Jesus Christ and being justified by grace through faith. No other way. We have peace with God. And because now we have peace with God, look what else he says. He says, and through him, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have gained what? Access. Oh, what a powerful word. Now, to you and I, access is not such a big deal, is it? But you need to know, to these people he was writing to, this is, again, just as, as justification by faith was such a revolutionary thought, such a revolutionary truth. The very thought of access, do you know that the Jews did not even have that word in their vocabulary? Access to God? No. The pagans didn't have access to God. Nobody had access to God except one person, one day a year, the high priest. And man, he got out in there and got out as fast as he could. <laughs> Nobody had access to God. But now that, now that we're at peace with God, Paul says, through our Lord Jesus, we now have access. We have access. I want you to turn with me to see a passage. Look at, um, where is it? Exodus, the 19th chapter. We're going to read this quickly because it's a long, long section, but I just want you to see this. An example of how the people, how the people of Israel, right from the very beginning, did not have access to God. They just couldn't walk right up and talk to God. They couldn't be in his presence. Verse 9 of the 19th chapter of Exodus. Listen to this. 
The Lord said to Moses, now this is right on the heels, right on the heels now of the people telling Moses that whatever God says, they'll do it. Okay? Most of us can relate to that. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. In other words, I'm going to validate you, Moses. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. In other words, that they would obey him. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain. And tell them, be careful, you do not go up on the mountain or touch the foot of it. Don't even get close to this mountain that God's coming down on. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he should not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up onto the mountain. In other words, when it's all clear. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. In other words, be celibate now. Be holy unto the Lord, even you husbands and wives. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very long trumpet blast. Now get this next sentence. Everyone in the camp trembled. Can you picture this? I mean, there's a couple million people out there. Everyone trembled. God was coming. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come on Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. You know what the whole lesson of this passage is? God's illustrating his holiness and the people's unholiness. That's what it is. The people had no access to God because they were unholy, because they were defiled with sin. That's the whole lesson. Do you remember when the tabernacle and the temple were set up? And the people would come. They could only go so far and no further. The women could only go so far and no further. Actually, before that, the Gentiles could come in, but they could only go into the outer court. They couldn't go any further. And then the, the women could only go as far as the court of the, of the women. Then the men could only go so far and no further. 
And then the priest could only go so far, no further. And lastly, the high priest, and the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day a year to offer sacrifice. One day a year, he had access to God. And that with great preparation and sacrifice and cleansing. You see the whole picture? Access to God was not an issue. They didn't have access to God. The pagan nations didn't have access to God. Nobody had access to God. This is why Paul says this incredible thing. Now that we have peace with God, we have access to God. Wow. Absolutely astounding. This is unheard of. Access to God. Christ's death allowed it. That's why the writer to the Hebrews, and I think this is marvelous, in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the 16th verse, he says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may obtain grace and mercy. Why? You know he's writing this to? The Hebrews. This is totally revolutionary to them. They can approach the throne of grace now with confidence, boldly. They can march right into the throne room. They can go right to God directly. Yes. Because Jesus died. Jesus made the access. And guess what? Just like the peace, having peace, is in the perfect tense, this also Having access is in the perfect tense. We have perfect access to God. Nothing interrupts it. We can go to God any time. Any time. No special permissions required. Perfect access. Over in the 27th chapter of Matthew, the 51st verse, as Jesus dies... You remember what happens to the temple veil? This was the thick separating veil between the Holy of Holies and the outer court. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. From God's side, it was torn in two down to men. You know what that signified? Access. Now there was free access. They could go into the court that access to God, no longer did they need mediators, no longer did they need a high priest, no longer did they need the continual sacrificial system. They had finally had that one sacrifice that did it. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the eighth verse, Paul writes a very interesting thing, a very short thought. Paul writes that he descended, and when he ascended, he led the captives out. Some of your translations are, he led captivity captive. You know what he did? All the Old Testament believers, all the people who died believing God, waiting for the promise, they didn't yet have access to God until the day Jesus died. And when he descended, he went down to where they were all waiting and he led them to God. He gave them access. 
Can you imagine what a glorious time that was? And Moses and Abraham and all the Old Testament believers were led captive by Christ and brought to God. Awesome, huh? Access. Access. And we have access now to God through Christ. The last part of the verse. Now this is absolutely astounding. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this, what? Grace. Now look at this, what he says. In which we now stand. Now you know what that word, that word stand in the Greek? That word stand now is also in the perfect tense. We stand perfectly in grace. I want you to picture yourself right now. If you're a saved, if you're a, believe, a believer, if you're saved, if you put your faith in Jesus, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture yourself right now in this huge field. You're standing in this massive field of grace. As far as your eye can see in any direction, you're standing in this incredible field of grace up to your earlobes. Grace all around you. Graciousness. God's graciousness all around you as far as you can see. And no matter where you travel in this field and you stop and you look around, grace as far as you can see. Perfect. We, this grace in which we now stand perfectly. Isn't that awesome? Incredible. We stand in the midst of God's graciousness no matter what. No matter what. We're not moving in and out of it. We're standing in it up to our earlobes, enjoying it, smelling it, reveling in it, God's grace, God's gracious love, his graciousness, as far as your eye can see, this grace in which we now stand. Wonderful, isn't it? What keeps us in that grace? Jesus. You see, the Bible in the book of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. But he's not a high priest after the order of, of Levi or Aaron. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is an eternal priesthood. It's Jesus who keeps us in that field of grace. When a person is justified by faith, they have permanent peace with God. They have permanent access with God. They permanently stand in that field of grace. How? By Christ. He keeps us there. He's the one that's the reason for the permanence of it all, for the perfection of it all. Jesus. Let me point out some passages for you to support this. In Jude, the 24th chapter, turn there. It's right at the, toward the end of the New Testament. Right before the book of Revelation, page 1254. 
You've got to see this verse. Jude is just one chapter long. Verse 24. Listen to what God writes. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without, what? Fault. Who's able to do this? Jesus. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Awesome, huh? Absolutely awesome. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Do you know, that, do you know the only place that grace works? Grace only works when there's sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for grace, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. If you're out there in that field, if you're loving the Lord, but you're not perfect yet, right? And you fall short, you sin either deliberately or by mistake, guess what? God's grace overwhelms you. God's grace overwhelms you. He doesn't kick you out of the field. I love this. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, verses 31 and 32, do you remember when Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you. Whoa. And Jesus says, but I have interceded for you. I prayed for you. You'll be sifted. But because I have interceded for you, you're going to come out of it okay. You see how Jesus sustains his own? You see how Jesus keeps his own? Peter doesn't keep himself there. He floods it, doesn't he? Jesus sustains him. In Hebrews, the seventh chapter, let me read this to you. Powerful passage. Verse 25. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's always there interceding. The eighth chapter of Romans. Paul says that, that Jesus stands at the throne of God constantly making intercession for the saints. Just like he did for Peter. And what do we stand? Grace. By whose power? Jesus. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. We have peace with God, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have access into this grace in which we now stand. Paul says it's permanent. It's permanent. You can rest, and you can praise him that he's got you firmly in his hand. You will not slip. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for your word. 
Father, I thank you as we study it, we discover wonderful things that thrill our hearts. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that as we put our faith in him, as we are justified, that not only brings us into your kingdom, brings us into relationship with you, Lord, but keeps us there. It's you, Lord. It's not us. We don't have to keep some kind of standard, maintain some kind of ethical standard in order to maintain our salvation. God, that you keep us there. By Jesus. We are perfectly saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great grace to us. We worship you, Lord. We praise your name tonight. We exalt your holy name. Now, I don't know, but there may be some people here tonight who, for the first time in your life, you may have heard that God's at war with you. Maybe you're not consciously aware of it. Maybe you're not thinking that you're at war with God. Maybe you've been kind of benignly tolerant of Christians and you've just kind of been middle-of-the-road nice kind of person. But if you have not consciously made a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man can come to the Father but through me. Now, if you find yourself in that place, apart from Christ, then God's at war with you. And unless you do repent, and unless you do give your life to Christ, take refuge in him. You see, he died for you. He hung on that cross for you, and he took all of God's wrath. He took all of your sin, past, present, and future, on himself that God might declare you righteous because you believed. So God is offering you this great gift of salvation, eternal life. Not only eternal life, but a transformed life. Made a new person. If you choose to refuse it, God's still at war with you. And there will be a day when he will take you and he will send you to hell to burn forever. I want to offer you an opportunity to say, Jesus, save me. This requires that you understand that you're a sinner. This requires that you be willing to repent. That means turn around. That means look towards God. Quit running from him. This requires that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for you. If you're willing to take those steps, God wants to save you. And I'd love the privilege of leading you in a short prayer. And if you want to pray, then I, I just need to know that. I want to invite you to stand if you want to pray. Just wherever you're sitting, just stand up. And that'll let me know that you want to pray and you're serious. And then we'll pray in just a moment. Is there anybody at all?